Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have no good martinis for you today. We do have a bad, a bad slash crazy, and then one that's just crazy. Uh, so let's start with the actual bad. And Jim, the uh, consumer inflation numbers will come out tomorrow. But given what we're seeing in the producer price index, uh, there's not a lot of reason for optimism. The Bureau of Labor Statistics report today says, quote, the producer price index for final demand increased 0.4% in September, seasonally adjusted. Prices for final demand, less foods, energy, and trade services advanced 0.4%, the largest rise since increasing 0.5% in May for the 12 months ended in September. The index for final demand, less foods, energy, and trade services moved up 5.6% overall, of course, on the year-over-year. August was at 8.7%. It's now to 8.5% in September. Um, But, Jim, it's obvious here that with the largest jump now in a few months, things are not getting better. We'll see what the consumer numbers are tomorrow. Uh, But for administration that said this is transitory, sure doesn't appear that way. Now, as I wrote Monday, this is inflation week. This is economic news week for the campaign. Obviously, that's the issue that most Republicans are emphasizing in the midterm election campaigns. And, you know, we don't know exactly what tomorrow is going to bring. The consumer price index number is what most people think of as the inflation rate. And you can see differences between the producer price index and consumer price index once in a while, but generally they tend to move in tandem. And, you know, we don't know what tomorrow is going to be, but it's not going to be good. You know, it was uh, 8.3 in August, 8.5% in July, 9.1% in June. So I'm, people point out, ah, oh, you know, it's declining. Well, okay, maybe it peaked in June, uh, but it's still bad when you're only slightly below the worst rate in 40 years. It's really not that much of an improvement for what it's worth. Uh, the projection is around 8, 8.1% for tomorrow. Uh, Kiplinger's has said, the, the financial magazine has said, expect it to be around 8% until the end of the year. So my guess is tomorrow you're going to see a lot of people insisting, aha, look, it's only 8% or only 8.1%. It's declining. Well, actually, no. <laughs> Prices are still going up. It's that the rate of increase is declining slightly. It's still really bad. And I don't really think that people are going to feel like they're really having you know great numbers uh, or that you know, things are getting more affordable or anything like that. Um, with luck, this will lead to some sort of questioning of the president, and he probably will offer some sort of, eh, but it's almost flat type, uh, you know, lame spin on something like that. So again, expect, you know, this economic storm is coming. You're going to see a huge fight about it, but who knows? Maybe if it declines, you know, more, Biden will try to say it was 0% from month to month or something like that. Again, people don't really think about it month to month, unless it's something going up very rapidly, like, uh, you know, gas prices. It's mostly people think about what's normal, which may be what they were paying last year and what they're paying this year. It's going to be probably a bad number tomorrow. It might be a really bad number tomorrow. And my guess is you'll see Republicans talking about this a great deal. Democrats not talking about it a great deal. On paper, that could be good for Republican hopes of winning in the midterms. But all in all, it's still very bad news for the country. Yeah, exactly. I think the White House spin is that the year over year is down from 8.7 to 8.5. And that's just because of the huge jumps uh, you know, around this time last year. And so the jumps 
over the last month or two are are a little bit smaller than that. But if, if that's what they're going to crow about, uh, it, it proves that they really don't have any solutions here. And if that weren't enough, Jim, I also noticed today, just as an aside, that mortgage interest rates are at their highest level since 2006. Uh, the most popular uh, uh, 30-year fixed-rate mortgage rose by six basis points to 6.81% for the week ending October 7th. So, Jim, anytime your mortgage rates uh, are the highest or remind anyone of 2006, you're probably not headed in the right direction. All right, on to our bad-slash-crazy martini now, Jim. And you did a, a long analysis today of not only John Fetterman as the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania for this open seat as Pat Toomey gets set to retire, running against Dr. Oz, of course. It's part analysis of Fetterman and part analysis of the media, which loves to fawn all over John Fetterman. Oh, he's 6'8", he's 300 pounds, he got a shaved head, he's got this goatee tattoos, Doc Martens. Man, this guy's amazing. And then somehow they never actually get around to talking about anything he's accomplished because there's so little of it. In the meantime, of course, he's now dealing with the after effects of this stroke. He needs closed captioning to process what, what people are, are saying to him. We've seen his speech patterns on, on the campaign trail and so forth. But apart from the health situation, there's kind of been this bizarre narrative of Fetterman ever since he started into local politics in Braddock, Pennsylvania. And for some reason, uh, the media who would hate him if he was a Republican with most of the same, you know, basic characteristics, uh, love him now because he's on the left and they see him as this great figure that they can get behind. Yeah, this kind of started, as you probably saw in the Pennsylvania Senate race, crime is a big issue. Uh, you know, Oz is hitting Fetterman pretty hard on this. And the argument from Fetterman is, no, I've got a great record on crime. In fact, we had five years without any murders. The, one of the things worth keeping in mind is that he was mayor for 13 years. So I'm glad he had a good five-year run in that stretch. Uh, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, from about 2016 on, uh, the crime rate, particularly the violent crime rate, went up pretty dramatically. I think if you look at the state of Braddock uh, from when he began to when he ended his time as mayor, I don't think you can say things are dramatically different. Maybe you can point to a little bit here on the margins, but uh, the economy, look, this is the epitome of a hollowed out rust belt steel town that is struggling. Um, and if anyone, any listeners saw the Cormac McCarthy movie, or the, Cormac, the movie based on the Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, which is set after the apocalypse, like civilization has collapsed. People are scrounging in desperation for food. Picture it as like Mad Max without all the fun. Um, a dark, bleak, depressing, lifeless wasteland. And part of that film was filmed in Braddock, Pennsylvania. So when your town is being selected to represent a post-apocalyptic landscape, that's a sign that things are really going. This is happened, That was filmed before Fetterman stepped into the job, but that's just kind of this indication of like, that's how bad it was. Can you point to some things that are better? Well, the population actually declined. Uh, the excess said the economy did not struggle. And I said, um, you know, crime uh, did not improve. You know, you can point, I think, I think you can point to some various charitable efforts that Fetterman helped spearhead, a lot of it funded by his father. Uh, Fetterman, as you, as listeners probably know, made $150 a month as mayor. And he was essentially financially supported by his father who runs an insurance company. Now that's great, 
you know, I'm, I'm good for him that he's got a wealthy parents and the wealthy parents said, you know what, son, you want to dedicate your life to public service. You go ahead. You do that. Uh, we're going to support you. And oh, by the way, we're going to help finance some of these projects you want to do in the town. I mean, that's nice. It's good for him. That also really isn't the uh, image that you would get from this. And I went through, I read probably a good dozen or so Fetterman profiles over the last day or so. And all of them have the same tone. And it's always this, you just got to get a look at this guy, John Fetterman. He's big. He's 6'8". He's 300. So, by the way, his weight changes a little bit year by year in all of these profiles. So good for Fetterman, who at one point was like close to 400 pounds. Um, they always talk about his head. They always talk about his tattoos. They always talk about his facial hair. They talk a lot about how he dressed. You would think they were sending the fashion correspondence. And while this is all interesting, and obviously this leads to a lot of photo spreads and pictures of him on the, you know, hanging out on the street or next to a rusted out factory or something like that. And, you know, you can see why this appealed to various national publications. You know, here's a guy who looks like he's in a biker gang, but believe it or not, he went to Harvard and he's got a progressive agenda. You know, like, sure, there's a little bit of this, you know, uh, man bites dog unusualness to it. I, I, the problem is, is that if this all happened. I went back and I checked. He's elected mayor in 2005. He takes office in January 2006. By February 2009, three years into it, the New York Times writes this very generous profile. Now, the New York Times doesn't spend a lot of time covering Braddock, Pennsylvania. This is out by Pittsburgh. This is not the usual New York Times circulation you know, uh, area. By April, he's testifying before Congress in the Environmental Defense Fund on behalf of the Environmental Defense Fund. By May 2009, the Rolling Stone writes a profile of him. By July, The Guardian. And in 2009 and 2010, he appears on Stephen Colbert's program. Right. The country is full of small town mayors of towns that are struggling, who are trying really hard. They don't usually get on Stephen Colbert multiple times. It is as if the media decided, hey, look at this guy. He looks really unusual, but he agrees with all the stuff we want. And this is in a key part of the country. Therefore, we love him. And it's as if they decided he has to be a success. Now, Fetterman had problems with the uh, the borough council in, in uh, Braddock. They've had corruption scandals there. I'm not saying that this, this borough council was uh, the heroes of the story. They do think that Fetterman, one, gets way too much credit for what improved in uh, Braddock, and two, that the improvements in Braddock are a lot more hype than, uh, than results here. But, you know, he, he has a lot of tension with them and basically just decides to stop going to borough council meetings. Well, that ordinarily might be, okay, well, that's routine problems there. But then you point out the fact that the Associated Press looked at his schedule as lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, which he's been for the past four years. And they found out for about a third of the days there was nothing on his schedule. Now, this is all before the stroke. This is not health-related issues that are keeping him from doing his duties or something like that. So for a guy who wants to be in government, I think it's really fair to ask, how much does John Fetterman actually like doing the work of being in government? Because he's posing for a lot of these profiles and photo ops and all that kind of stuff. But we actually, you know, in terms of actually doing the work and showing up, that's very debatable. Um, and I just kind of looked at it and I was reminded, Greg, of the coverage of Beto O'Rourke in the 2018 cycle. I actually was really reminded of one of my all-time favorites, I'm kind of making air quotes as I say that, Julian Castro, the former mayor of San Antonio, who was you know, touted as the Latino Obama and, you know, 
Um, you can go back and you know, probably find Cory Booker examples. You can probably find, you know, there are a bunch of figures, about one or two a year that come along and the national media just kind of decides this person is the next big thing in democratic politics. And when I say big thing, I'm not trying to make fun of uh, Fetterman's appearance. And once they decide that, you, you're basically treated as a success, whether or not you actually have the record of accomplishments that we would expect from someone being touted as a success. As I said, you can't really point to a lot of really dramatic improvements in Braddock. I think the nicest thing you can say is that he tried hard. But guys who try hard don't automatically get the big, glowing, gushy profiles of this. So what's going on here? I think what it is is that he has the image Democrats want and in the end, that's all that they really believe that they need. We will see how the election turns out, Greg. But I, I really felt, looked at this and I was like, oh, my God, I'm having Beto flashbacks. I'm having, oh, Pete Buttigieg, another small town mayor who kind of, yes. you know, gets like the, I, wait, a couple people got mad at me for not mentioning that example. But like there's this pattern that happens and they just, they just fall in love with these figures and they really can't be bothered too much with what they've actually done, which I think should be really the centerpiece of who you want to tout as someone we should be considered for higher office. Fascinating on so many levels. Read the jolt if you haven't already today. Jim does a phenomenal job, as usual, in, in laying out all the different layers of this story. Uh, just how you explained it there, Jim, it's just, first of all, the power of the New York Times. They do a profile, and then half a dozen other people immediately jump on the train, and so then all the Democrats decide that they've got to get excited about this guy. I saw it on, on Twitter today. I can't remember who said it, but imagine the circumstances of this race being flipped by party. So in other words, imagine the Republican nominee outside of the whole stroke situation, largely subsisting for more than 50 years based on the wealth of the father. And one of the things being known about this person is that they chased a black jogger down the street with a shotgun at one point, running against a Democrat who would be the first Muslim U.S. senator. How do you think the media coverage would be slightly different if everything were the same except the party affiliation? Yeah, I was surprised to see if Oz wins, uh, he will be the first Muslim elected to the U.S. Senate. No Obama jokes, please. <laughs> And, you know, you, you know, for for a country, you know, like for idea that, you know, anybody can end up serving in government unless you know, as long as you're a natural born citizen, you can be president. Right. We you know, we believe in an America where everybody gets to participate and everybody gets a shot at success. And if you're good and you're smart and you work hard, the sky's the limit. You'd think people look at that and say, hey, good for that. And it's not just you. Know, it's the allegedly intolerant party that is elevating a Muslim to uh, a position where there are only a hundred of them. And of course, none of that is going on. And in fact, you know, you're getting the same, I'm sure at some point, you know, someone will argue that Oz is a white supremacist, a Christian nationalist white supremacist, <laughs> who just happens to be Muslim, Turk, yeah, Turkish American. Now this race might be more lopsided if Republicans come up with a different nominee. Still not Obviously, a huge fan of, of Dr. Oz and his politics. But from what I'm hearing, Jim, he's actually putting in the work now. Uh, we were a little uh, baffled by that after the primary, uh, that he wasn't uh, hitting the bricks a lot. But apparently, he's he's all over the state trying to trying to win over votes. So we'll see what happens there. It's, it's, it's one of the tighter races for sure. All right, Jim, speaking of competitive Senate races, let's go to our crazy martini. And for that, we have to go down to Georgia. And that's where Raphael Warnock is trying to win a full six years. He's running against Herschel Walker. We talked about Walker and the uh, the controversy he's gotten in about um, allegations that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion. At the same time, he's arguing for a, a federal ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy and so forth. And he's claiming that she's lying and, and on and on and on. But uh, the polling in this race is very interesting. we got two different surveys out now. 
One is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which still shows it a very, very tight race, with Warnock up 46% to 43 Now, in that same poll, in the governor's race, Brian Kemp is leading Stacey Abrams 51% to 41%. I think that's the first time I've seen a double-digit lead for Kemp in that race. Meanwhile, Quinnipiac has things very differently. They've got the Senate race 52-45 for Warnock, which anytime an incumbent's over 50, that's good in the polls. And, of course, the margin's bigger. But the thing that makes it odd, Jim, is the result in the governor's poll, and that's Kemp 50, Abrams 49, which does not seem consistent with anything we've seen before. So unless people are taking out their frustrations on Walker on the governor's race as well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of reason for this. But uh, as, as you mentioned in our email exchange today, whenever you see a Quinnipiac poll that suspiciously shows the Democrats doing better than any other poll, uh, you might want to take a second look at that or at least take it with a grain of salt. So you notice that when you see polling numbers move, very rarely do you see them move more than uh, five points from the last poll in a race. If, if you see a really big swing and there isn't a big dramatic event that could have spurred that change, uh, then you probably, you're, you know, you should start stepping around. Something doesn't quite smell right about a poll like this. And oh, by the way, it's probably worth noting, in the Atlantic Journal-Constitution poll, Walker is only down by three. It certainly doesn't look, you know, by that, if that's the accurate measure of public opinion at this point, then it appears the big abortion story really didn't have that much of a impact. Not exactly shocking. I think if you're a pro-life Republican in Georgia, you feel like your interests are better served in a long interest with Herschel Walker as your senator than with Raphael Warnock as your senator, even if you're upset with Walker about his actions in the past. So I looked at that, and I think but the other thing that jumped out about that Atlantic Journal-Constitution poll was like, well, okay, most of the polling has had Kemp ahead uh, five points, six points. It was starting to get up to seven points. A double-digit lead is one of the like, wow, okay, maybe the bottom is falling out. And, and I've heard from more than a few people who are watching this race that, it's you know, first of all, they totally believe in the split between the Senate race and the governor's race. They really do think uh, that, yeah, Brian Kemp is winning pretty handily and Walker is neck and neck, maybe a little bit ahead, maybe a little bit behind now uh, to Warnock. But this is because a whole bunch of people who were open to, who may have either voted for Stacey Abrams back in 2018 or who were open to voting for her saw her reaction to the uh, election in 2018 and her insistence that she had won and that Kemp had cheated and a whole bunch of, you know, 50,000 votes were not counted, et cetera, et cetera. And that just kind of made her toxic. Certainly most Democrats were still willing to line up with her, but there was a certain number of folks in the middle who were just like, nah, you're, you're, you're a clown. I, I can't take you seriously. You're as bad as Trump on this go away. And that's what's been holding her back. And, you know, we've been arguing that she's had a very bad hyped performance ratio throughout her public career, but, you know, it seems to be getting worse. Kemp winning by 10 points would be kind of a decisive go away, Stacey Abrams, that's enough. And I was ready for the conventional wisdom in this race to shake. And then all of a sudden, Quinnipiac comes along with this result, which is exactly what Democrats wanted to see. And exactly what they wanted to uh, really, I think her, her campaign needed to say, oh, she's only down by one. She's still in this. Don't give up. Keep knocking on doors for her. Keep sending donations, et cetera, et cetera. I have a very hard time believing she's down by one. I, you know, maybe that 10 point lead in the other poll is the outer edge of this, the outer edge of the margin of error. But it seems to fit. Um, I don't feel like she's had any dramatic changes that are going to suddenly have her surge, as Quinnipiac suggests. And then I started looking back, and Quinnipiac is kind of infamous. It's a school up in Connecticut, and 
what really stands out to me was throughout the 2020 cycle, they polled the state of Car South Carolina three times on the Senate race. You may remember Democrats were convinced that Jamie Harrison, the Democratic nominee, was going to beat Lindsey Graham. Now it's South Carolina. My parents lived down there. That's a really darn Republican state. Used to be Democratic. You had a lot of blue dog Democrats, but it's it's a Republican state right now. Maybe not Florida. Eh, you know, actually, I'd put it comparable to Florida, comparable to Texas, Wyoming. South Carolina is one of those states where, like, you know, the Democrats would just need a, you know, an inside straight, you know, whatever your Hail Mary, whatever sports or, or gambling metaphor you like. It was really tough odds. But Quinnipiac said that Jamie Harrison was tied with Lindsey Graham. And partially as a result that they thought that he could win, and partially because the Democratic grassroots hate Lindsey Graham, uh, Jamie Harrison raked in more donations than any other candidate in Senate history. And then on Election Day, he lost by 10 points. So it raises the question, was Jamie Harrison ever all that competitive with Lindsey Graham? Or was Lindsey Graham always on path for a comfortable lead and a comfortable win, as most of the other polling in that state showed? I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I think Quinnipiac's doing it again. I'm not saying that Georgia and South Carolina are exactly the same, but politically they're not that different. And I have a feeling that when Quinnipiac calls down there, I don't know whether the people who answer the phone are self-selecting. I don't know if they have, you know, Yankee New England accents or whatever it is. For whatever reason, Quinnipiac polls the South bad. And I think this is going to happen again. We'll see how it shakes out. But this strikes me as a life preserver of polls from a pollster who could generate a bit more skepticism amongst the general public. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you could say this is partially a good martini, because as long as you got a poll saying yeah. Stacey Abrams is within the margin of error, hey, Democrats, keep pumping money into this race. This is, this is winnable. Come on, we can do it. We can do it. And they, I mean, Jamie Harrison raised more money than even Beto when he ran for Senate. He's, he's got the record now for most money raised during a Senate cycle. And so if that's, if that's going to be what happens here and the Democrats waste a ton of money, I'm okay with that. But uh, if Quinnipiac wants its credibility back, uh, polls like this isn't going to do it. All right, Jim. Well, there we are. Uh, another day in the books, and we'll do it again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch and tell your friends about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, remember, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Go out and order Jim's brand new thriller, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. Do you worry that people are losing the imagination for fiction? Um, because we are in this sort of hyper-stimulating world where we're bombarded constantly with notifications from real life that is social media. Scientifically, we know our intention spans are decreasing. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.